Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. I am a writer, speaker, and educator who loves to geek out with people from a whole variety of backgrounds about their perspectives on God, the Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. So pour yourself a drink, grab some food, and join me at this virtual podcast table. This week we are joined by Dr. David Leong, who is the Associate Professor of Missiology at Seattle Pacific University. The two of us share a deep interest in theology and place, although I tend to go back into the context of the biblical text while he brings it forward into our modern day, but it makes for a really fantastic conversation. Last week, we not only heard about Dr. Leong's context growing up and how that influenced his work, but we also discussed the significance of the imagination and thus the powerful benefits artists can bring to church communities. And honestly, I just keep thinking about the necessary partnership between imagination and reconciliation. In addition, Dr. Leung said... But so I think that's a part personal. I think having the chance to put down roots was something that really interested me in that, that idea of place as connected to memory and identity and meaning. Which is so much like the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm always happy to bring that book into the conversation. So this is exactly where we will start this week's conversation. But first, thank you to all who are supporting this podcast, especially people like the Sion family and David and Michelle Kaufman. They, along with the whole rest of the Patreon team, are covering the production cost of these episodes, and I am just so grateful. As I edit this particular conversation, I keep going back to something that Dr. Leong says at the end of our conversation. We talk about finding conversation partners around such important issues like race and place. And I just kept thinking, maybe you could tell your friends and family about this particular episode and then invite them around your own table to have these kinds of conversations in a way that is your way of supporting this podcast and letting its influence grow beyond our intimate virtual table. In any case, I'm really glad you're here. And so now let's get back to Deuteronomy. I mean, to Dr. Leong. I resonate so deeply with so many things that you're talking about. And I will just say, you sound like you study the book of Deuteronomy. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more. Deuteronomy is all about so many of the things that you just said uh, in terms of daring to imagine. It's almost a daring to state the potential of the place outside of what it looks like at the onset. And that, yeah, I I also feel alongside of you this need to have all these artists around me because I feel constantly this need of whatever has been built is wrong And I myself don't have it within myself to reimagine something more beautiful. And so I I feel like I just keep pulling artists around me because I'm like, you're accustomed to seeing things in a different way and reimagining. And I need their voices in my life right now um, to kind of reimagine the beautiful ways in which things can be put together in a mosaic that makes sense, you know, where people actually belong. 
Um, and it's really interesting. You've mentioned this word belonging several times. And I know Willie Jennings has written quite a bit about this, but for the sake of our conversation, and I think about belonging, and I'll tell you why this comes up so poignantly for me. I used to live in a neighborhood in Philadelphia. There is a Black-owned coffee shop slash bookstore altogether. And I used to love going there. And there was a such an interesting combination of people who were there. I would see Muslims, Christians, and Jews sitting around a table having interfaith conversations. And then lots and lots of African-Americans, uh, school teachers, a few professors, and other random people of all ages. Two blocks away, there was a white-owned coffee shop where almost everyone I saw inside the coffee shop was white. And I used to walk between these two places and think, what is it that where one place feels like everyone is welcomed and one place feels exclusionary, which has, I've just been dwelling on this for like three or four years now, <laughs> this how, what are the invisible ways we're creating a sense of belonging or exclusion? So are there things that, that you come up like, or that you talk about with your students about even the invisible barriers we put up when it comes to race to create these places of exclusion? Yeah, I think that's a great example. I think what you've described uh, occurs in so many of our communities, right? Where, of course, there's no there's no sign on the door. There's no um, barbed wire between these two spaces. Yeah. But for whatever reason, there's like an implicit understanding for people who participate in these spaces. You know, whether, whether you know, for some it may be more explicit than others, but I think there's a kind of a agreed understanding of what the, what this social space looks like. And I think that's, you know, I talk a little bit in my book about um, what I call like the, the social logic of homogeneity and what a what a powerful force that is in our lives. And I think that's something um, we don't spend enough time pausing to really consider more critically. I don't think we go to the grocery store or go to the mall or go to the park think with this lens all the time. I think we, we operate in sort of a default mode of homogeneity in terms of, mm -hmm. and, you know, I think in, and we know this from social psychology and so forth, that there's a, a degree to which that longing for familiarity and sameness right. is, is healthy and even necessary in how we understand who, who we are. Uh, and yet at the same time, I mean, I mentioned this early in the book, I don't think that that should be the only or even primarily the way that we understand belonging because of what it produces is um, these long-standing patterns. Um, and so whether we're talking about patterns of exclusion that are racialized policies in banking or housing, or, or mm -hmm. even if it's mm -hmm. much more, I think, um, I think what, what you were just, your example that you gave, it's, it's much more, um, I think those everyday examples are in some ways more insidious because they they shape us in at an implicit level in ways that we're not always able to articulate. So if you ask right. people like, why do you like going to that cafe? I mean, I think if you were to get a couple of focus groups together from spaces from, you know, people from those disparate spaces, I don't think many of them would 
I mean, it's <laughs> it's all theoretical. I don't know these these particular cafes <laughs> at all. What you're describing, but it's hard for me to imagine that that you know the pe- folks in the predominantly white cafe would say, well, you know, I'm just just a lot more comfortable um, in all white spaces. And uh, you know, when I see a barista who's white, I just think that's my kind of barista. You know, <laughs> I, right. I think it's it's much more subconscious than that, right? We have now. A, I think so because I think even in the white cafe, they would say all people are welcome. We want everyone in the community yeah. to come here. And I think, you know, this is where, I mean, for all of, there is some, there are some critics of, you know, the, the body of research on implicit bias that comes, you know, primarily out of Harvard. But um, I think generally without getting in the weeds of, of some of the, uh, some of that research, I think hopefully we can, we can recognize that implicit bias is something that operates within, within our lives as, as individuals, but also in our, you know, structurally in our social spaces, that in terms of the places that we desire and what types of people feel inviting to us, there is this kind of baseline default of, you know, I want to be around people who look like me, who think like me, who've experienced what I've experienced. And, um, of course, this is true for people of all backgrounds, but of course, the difference in the United States, and this is where maybe we get into narrating the creation of white spaces. It's while everyone, I think, longs for familiarity, that doesn't, historically, that doesn't mean that everyone gets to experience that in, in the same way. I'm not explaining this very well, but I think you see where I'm going with it, just yeah, that, that yeah. because of certain dominant groups in our history the creation of spaces and the creation of homogeneous spaces has had, you know, um, quite a costly effect on people on the outside of that mainstream. So, These are all familiar themes in the last few episodes of Context Matters. The stories we tell or don't tell creates a normative narrative. We've discussed this in terms of church history and theology, But have you ever considered your social narratives and the role place has in creating them? Think for a moment about what Dr. Leong mentioned just a bit ago. Have you ever gone into a store or to the park with the specific intention of noticing how homogenous or diverse that place is? I wonder what you would notice about your everyday places simply by deciding to pay careful attention to why you enjoy those places. What places do we gravitate towards and what places do we aim to create? This is where I know I sound like a broken record, but once again, I think this is why the church, well, all of our places, but the church needs an active and prophetic imagination to envision the way to create places that retell stories and include a whole variety of narratives. I asked Dr. Leong what resources he uses to help his students engage many of these ideas. I borrow a bit of some some shorthand language from uh, a friend of mine, Bob Eckblad. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's an Old Testament scholar, but I have a few a number of stories about his ministry in this uh, kind of just out. He's about an hour outside of Seattle, mm-hmm. but um, he talks a lot about um, just the margins in the mainstream. And yeah. um, he's someone um, you know really shaped. He's actually a graduate of SPU, worked as a missionary in Honduras for about ten years, came back to the Seattle area, started a, an organization called Tierra Nueva, which basically is you know he's maintained a lot of connections to Honduran farmers, but does a lot of does jail chaplaincy, works a lot with um, undocumented laborers and whatnot. Because of his uh, 
influence in liberation theology and others, other traditions as well. He, I, I like his framing of saying that um, not that it's not that it can be so simply divided into the mainstream and the margins, but he says that one of the the key practices of the church is to be a bridge between those communities, mm-hmm. um, between what we perceive as the mainstream and the margins, instead of further isolating ourselves into sort of mainstream narratives of upward mobility and opportunity and respectability and so forth. He says that the margins are such a gift to to us as we understand the role of the church in the world. And so I think this is a sort of cliche phrase, and I see it reposted all the time all over social media, but I, I love the, you know, that classic Chinua Chibe, um, you know, adage that, that uh, you know, until lions have their own historians and the tales of the hunt will always glorify the, the, the hunter. And I think this was especially, I've seen it a lot recently because uh, just yesterday was the contested parallel celebrations of Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day. And it was very telling as I think about the polarization that happens in social media as I pulled up my you know feeds. I thought like, it's, it's, very, it's very clear. People have pretty strong feelings about this. I actually decided to talk with my students, you know, about that. You know, how do they feel? I have a student from Columbus, Ohio, who, you know, this year, um, a lo- it's like a 20-foot statue of Christopher Columbus outside of City Hall was torn down. Um, and it was interesting to hear her take. She basically, you know, this young college student said it seems to her that the um, surround, like Columbus proper, and I know nothing. No, I know nothing about Columbus other than what my student has told me. <laughs> and she said simply that there was a lot of progressive energy and activism around that, people being in support of this. But she said, sort of in the greater Columbus area outside, there was a lot of skepticism about, you know, what good it was to to pull down a, a statue. But monuments and statues aside, I think it does point to this challenge of saying, how do we think more honestly and fully about the legacy of someone like Columbus and the doctrine of discovery and and all that happened along with that? Um, right. Knowing that we, you know, we know there were some clear patterns of violence and exploitation, and then all of the genocidal sort of logic that follows that in the eradication of indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. I just think that it's it's absolutely critical to maintain an understanding that the stories that we have told, the mainstream stories, are not the only final authority on on what has happened in, in these, um, right. in these places. Right. And so right. Um, this is, you know, for example, it, it's, it's tough without getting, of course, we know that the, the whole, I guess I don't, I don't want to get too lost in like um, the broad strokes of colonial modernity. That's just a, it's a mount, mountain of a discourse, but, in, but instead maybe I'll just think about, you know, in Seattle, Seattle um, where I've spent, you know, the majority of my adult life now is named after an indigenous chief. Seattle's kind of an anglicized way of saying his name. He's sometimes described as Chief South or Chief Seal. He was a Duwamish person, and he advocated for peaceful negotiations with the white settlers who came across the Oregon Trail and up from Portland and eventually kind of staked their claim in what is now the city of Seattle. Hmm. But it's really striking to me as I think about a group that is still fighting. They're in this more or less 80-year legal battle with the federal government to get to get tribal recognition. And the it's, it's deeply ironic and tragic to me that the city has all of these Duwamish and Coast Salish and indigenous names all over 
Um, it's in the name of the city. It's in the names of our, our surrounding areas, our bridges and rivers. Um, it's marked literally all over the land. And yet this is, uh, you know, a group that is still fighting for really basic uh, recognition mm. and dignity mm. of saying that, you know, so mm. we've, you know, like I think our university has moved towards doing, uh, trying to make a, a little bit more effort in terms of doing land acknowledgements and recognizing that this is, that, you know, that our university inhabits, you know, a space that is what some people call occupied Duwamish territory. And I think there's an interesting question for us to say, if we know that there was violence and treaty violation and theft of land that gave us the place that we now occupy, what does that mean for us to be truthful about whatever reconciliation would look like moving forward? Mm. I, I love the reading. I don't know if you've ever read the language of the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission's findings after you know roughly five to seven years of thousands of, of survivor accounts. There's um, the First Nation people, First Nations peoples of, of Canada, and it's their long kind of contested relationship with the Canadian government, and especially because of abuses in residential schools that were sponsored by a, a lot of different Christian denominations. Yeah. They forbade them from speaking their own languages. Right, right. They, such, they took yeah. these kids in the name of you know, Christianizing them, tore them away right. from their families, you know, abused them. You know, basically right. tries tried to um, eradicate all of their cultural identities. But what one thing that was said specifically because it was in educational places, edu- like schools, these residential boarding schools where the most violent and most egregious violations of people's humanity would occurred they said that you know moving forward they were trying to to say what would it look like for the Canadian government to offer college scholarships so that any descendant of these first nations peoples who suffered this terrible atrocity would receive the best education that Canada could offer and that the government should pay for that and i thought that's just a small picture of what reparations could could look like and and i think to me in some ways the the conversation the the link between reconciliation and reparations is something we <laughs> i think we need yeah. to have you know more <laughs> often so that reconciliation yeah. doesn't become simply a hug it out emotional moment of like promise right. keep like promise keepers was a thing that you know from the 90s <laughs> that i went to these stadium conferences and was hugging people and crying and i didn't understand why um, and I, I and i think there was good intention behind it but all that said i think to bring it back around to i think it's great to tell stories in a way that's more inclusive of voices on the margins but yeah. Equally important, I think, is to say what what do we do with these stories, right? What yeah. like how do we how do we hold them in such a way that we're not just you know washing our hands of it and saying now that right. we've told the truth we can move on with our lives. I think right. that by necessity, I hope that those stories change us, right? Change yeah. how we understand who we are and what it means to move forward together. With those stories and events that you were highlighting, those are all a lot of social issues, both in the States and in Canada. But what can the church do? This is what I I hear so many churches saying is those are social issues, Mm -hmm. you know, almost as if those are two different things. But but how would you how do you choose to start the conversation to engage churches in in that? 
Yeah, no, great question. I think I, I try to, you know, if if Jennings is one of the primary theological partners in the book, the other is this short excerpt from Stanley Hauerwas, um, yes. which really just I'm book. so glad you're going to quote him. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, was, was going to quote him too. <laughs> it's a book that, you know, I, I think it's uh, Resident Aliens, I think it's published in like yes. 1989. Yeah. You know, I, I read that in seminary, I think for some, I don't even remember the class that it was for, but that excerpt from, from Resident Aliens, of course, this wonderful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like echoed throughout the at least the latter half of the book where where he says the most creative social strategy we have to offer the world is is the church just the the life of the church um, and in particular, he says, and I, I love what I think Harvas as a, as a good Anabaptist is sort of, you know, drawing this picture of the church as a contrast community, right? And says that all the church does, and I'm, you know, just paraphrasing this long quote from Resident Aliens. He says, the church is a is a is a gathered people that just rehearses and tells this transformative story over and over again, right? And this story of the gospel that all of our all of our worship, our liturgies, these things are inhabiting this story and rehearsing it in such a way that we become transformed because of it. Mm-hmm. And I think we've just lost a lot of, of the beauty and, and um, even the, I mean, the diversity of ways that the gospel story plays out. I think that a lot of, I have a lot of bored parishioners who have just heard a really thin version of the gospel over and over and over again and lost all capacity to imagine what the gospel could mean for their lives because it's been broken down into this really kind of thin and simplistic formula, right? And and, and that formula could be either about personal salvation or personal piety. But I love that Harawa says, you know, if we're if we're being the church in the way that is anchored in that story that has the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Christ at the center, then we can't help but become a community where God is forming a family out of strangers, right? Because that's that's what the story does. Haras will, will preach well in a, in a lot of churches, and I think in some places, yeah. you know, you maybe need a few more examples. <laughs> I think there's, <laughs> there's um, I, I, maybe I'll just say briefly that, you know, this is where I'm really grateful for my local congregation, which I talk a little bit about in the book as well. What I love about Rainier Avenue Church is that it is a place that literally it's, you know, the place is in the name. And it and that is not just, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't just people being lazy, like, hey, we're on this street, so we're going to put, the, it's a community that I was drawn to because I, I felt uh, a kindred spirit in the leadership and in its history and in this wonderful community of saints, of people who said, like, we're just, we're committed to this place, this intersection, this street corner, and its broader community, and amidst all the changes it has gone through in the years, they said, we're just, I don't know if it's stubbornness or, or rootedness or both, but they just said, this is it. You know, this is the place that we're called to be. And uh, whatever God is going to do in and, in and through us is going to happen in this neighborhood. I was really drawn to that. And I said, that's the kind of place where I want, you know, my family, our collective faith to be nurtured by a place that yeah. has that kind of parish mindset. Yeah. So, um, and I think it just so happens that, uh, you know, the place that they were committing to was not an easy place and not a place that it was a place that, you know, I talk about this in the story where the denomination asked them to close their doors as people were, there was a lot of white flight happening in the community. They said, you should follow. You should, they said, your your congregants are all leaving. If nobody's left, you, you can't pay a pastor or keep these lights on. And, uh, you know, to their credit, these old stubborn saints said, 
then we'll just leave. They said, we'll leave the denomination, <laughs> but we're called to be here. And this neighborhood may be changing very rapidly. And there's all sorts of people coming, refugees coming after the Vietnam War. There's transition, transitional housing and things happening because of fair housing that opened up and communities of color coming in and surrounding the church. And I just loved that they said, we're going to figure that out. You know, we're going to stay mm-hmm. and we're going to become a different community in a lot of ways, but that's because of the place that we're committing to. So I just love yeah. that it has, it's really demonstrated to me a real working out of the gospel and a working out of those stories in sort of the yeah. best ways that Harwas yeah. kind of invites us to consider. I loved this moment I had in, well, I read your book when it first came out, but then I've been relooking at it again in preparation for this conversation. And I can't remember if it was right when you were talking about how or was, or if it, if it came about in like tangentially, like in a couple paragraphs before or after, but you actually used the word of like cultivating fictive kinship. Now that stood out to me because that is the language we use when we're talking about ancient Near Eastern covenants and this fictive kinship idea. So I've been teaching this for a long time, but I've I've not necessarily moved it into modern day to speak of the actual activity of the modern church. And did you do that on purpose or is that a happy like <laughs> circumstantial connection that came about? Because I loved that connection. I think the, you know, in some ways, I was just trying to unpack a little bit of Haravas's metaphor of, you know, forming a family, a family out of strangers. But I think beyond that, that idea of fictive kinship is something that's such a, I mean, I think of its implications, and I'm, again, just borrowing that from a lot of, like, from maybe the, the way I, like a cultural anthropologist would would use that term. Um, but I mean, I just I think like you've already mentioned, there's so many rich biblical and theological metaphors mm-hmm. that you know mm-hmm. when we think about adoption and all the powerful metaphors of being grafted into a story that is not our own, of being um, treated as as heirs, as daughters and sons of of Abraham and Israel. Like I think these are, you know, in so many of our communities, the family is this building block of society, and I think so much of what we see in the both the apostolic witness of the early church, but even going all the way back into the early parts of Israel's story, which you would know much much better than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we see all of those really beautiful pictures of people being treated as family yeah. when they did not yeah. share those traditional you know bloodlines, and, um, and I think that just being an essential ingredient of of outsiders being essential to the story. I think my um, I don't know if you're familiar with. Um, the work of, of Frank Spina. He was probably our longest, our longest tenured Old Testament scholar at, at Seattle Pacific. Um, and he has a book, I think a, like a 2005 Erdman's book called um, The Faith of the Outsider. And again, just a very common look at all of these outsiders in Israel's story and the essential role that they played and kind of piecing yeah. together what it means to be the the covenant family of God because of that. I love it. Okay, so you published this book back in 2017. Given everything that's happened, especially this summer in 2020, um, if uh, if the publisher came back to you and said, I'll let you add two more chapters to the second edition of yeah. your work, all of us have a little bit of remorse after something goes to publication and we yeah. dwell on it in our heads and we're like, oh, shoot, I should have said this. Do you have that? If you had two chapters, where would you go with it? 
I don't know that I would add two full chapters. I think there are definitely some revisions. I mean, there's a few things that stand out to me. One, you know, I was writing this, I remember sitting in a cafe, my local, you know, my, one of my favorite writing spots. And actually just, you know, I miss so much of like sitting and writing in a cafe during ah, this time of pandemic. I like, agree. I just, I cannot wait until, you know, it's it's safe for places to open again so I can yes. kind of go to those places. And um, anyhow, but as I was writing some of these middle chapters of the book, I remember thinking to myself, because it was right on, in some ways, some of the middle chapters, it was on the heels of uh, the social unrest in Ferguson and, and um, mm-hmm. the murder of Michael Brown and all yeah. of uh, the kind of amplified attention that was turned to Black Lives Matter because of that. Yeah. And I remember thinking in 2015, and this is and right up to the election of Trump in 2016, I thought, like, I've got to really get this done because you know, given the media's short attention span on issues of race, like this may not be relevant, like (laughs) in in some coming years. And even the, I have a chapter called, you know, walls of hostility, borrowing that language from Paul. And I think I just get, Trump gets a passing mention because at the time, I don't even think he had secured the Republican nomination. He had just more or less been, you know, chanting about building the wall as being this cornerstone of his his platform which is you know walls and geography aside has yeah. found it to be a pretty striking image right, <laughs> but yeah. um yep in a lot of ways as i think in 2020 back at the the moments i'm both in some ways like haunted at the cyclical nature of this to say like here we are again and instead yeah. of instead of ferguson and baltimore you know, we have Minneapolis and yep. and now all across. I mean, I, I never would have imagined that in the middle of this just crazy, terrible, bizarre year that it's been, that we would be in the midst of the longest and largest protest movement in American history, yeah. you know, and that, that this man named George Floyd would be at the center of it. And so in a lot of ways, it's really striking because I opened the book talking about, you know, the Los Angeles riots in 1992. That's right. And I just think like, in a lot of ways, I almost feel like now I, I want to say even more, like how many more times will we have to do this at a moment when it feels like our, our country is, is, you know, pulling at the seams of, of holding together. I just, I almost feel like I, I would want to turn up the temperature a bit. And this is a challenge, right? Because in some ways I'd want to, I'd want to call out a little bit more of yeah. what I see as a toxicity of white supremacy at the roots of, of American evangelicalism. But at the same time, um, I know that given the polarization of our climate, um, I'm kind of, I'm often preaching to the choir here. You know, I'm sure you've, you've felt this before mm-hmm. in your writing that, you know, the people who most need to read your work are not the ones who are reading it. Right. Right. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, I fought with the publisher over, I, I didn't want race in the title because we know who reads books about race, people who are already right. kind of on board, right? Who say like, right. this is important. You know, race in place, I guess, was, it was you know, it's a committee compromise and whatnot. But I think about people like, I have, I have family members who are, you know, lifelong conservative Republican folks. And it's hard, you know, it is hard um, to call, you know, loved family members and have these hard conversations. And, and I, I don't want to oversimplify the complexity of our political moment. But at the same time, I think if, if I could make some gestures in a 2020 update, I think it would yeah. be kind of to this end of saying, you know, on the one hand, I want to dial up the urgency of saying we, we won't be able to keep doing this over and over again. 
and I think, I think at the same time, I want to really reach out very intentionally to um, people who are not in the choir and say, you know, gosh, what can I do? What can I, what can I do to, um, to listen and to facilitate a real genuine and hospitable space to say like, these are things I deeply care about. These are people and, and stories and communities that have shaped my life. And I just want to make a more a genuine effort to, to find that space for, for dialogue about reconciliation that is not just the usual suspects. And so I think that's, I have no idea that what that would look like in the book. That's, I guess that's more so one of the things I would hope that I could I could accomplish if I were to, to get some revisions in there would be just just aware of more and more that the world I live in and the convictions that I hold and the people who are in my you know classes and so forth are generally people who are more or less on board, right? And, and I think that's important work still to, to deepen the convictions and provide resources for people. But I just know that um, because of this highly polarized moment, like the, ver- the people who I most want to be in conversation with, I am not reaching. That's sort of like a marketing dilemma, but yeah. I mean, beyond that, it's sort of like an existential dilemma, right? Of around, I think I'll maybe close with that idea. I quote it briefly in the beginning of the book that above all else, uh, cities are a reflection of our ability to, to live together. And I really believe that. I really, at the end of the day, don't just want to, uh, I don't want to score a bunch of points with like mic drops and zingers, you know, <laughs> like a, to, to kind of drive home whatever argument I'm making. I really want... I want us to live together and I want our cities to thrive for everyone. And I want us to be able to live in places that reflect, you know, the inbreaking of, of the, the kingdom of God. That is just, it's hard, hard to do in a book. <laughs> yeah, it is. This is why we need tables where we can sit around together Absolutely. and feast and yes. have hospitable conversations um, where we don't necessarily agree with one another, but where everyone's voice is heard. Thank you so much for your work. I think it's a great book that everyone everywhere should be reading. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. I appreciate yeah. the support for the book and the, the good conversation. I think we've just scratched the surface. Thank you for bringing your curiosity to this virtual table. Don't forget to share this episode with other people and then reach out to tell me about the follow-up conversations you are having about race and place. The talented Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created all of the music you hear. I look forward to our conversation next week. And until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. Mm